Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Eero and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Oh, it's me! Yay! Hey. Hello! Hey there, buddy. I was afraid, I'm always afraid that you're going to say somebody else's name and then I'm not going to be on the show anymore. (laughs) It's very rude because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we have some bad news for you, Mm. Jason. Please come in. Shut the the door behind you, please. Yeah. Fired uh, during a podcast. It's uh, (laughs) probably not the first time. Probably not the first time. But we we don't have time for this nonsense, Stephen. We don't have time. Because the the pre-flight checklist is full. The topics are full. We got... We got NASA budget stuff. We mm-hmm. went and saw a movie, and uh, also things are flying into space and coming back to Earth. Just like there's lots going on. So should we begin Prefect, which is our backronym for the pre-flight checklist? Let's do it. You want to start with the uh, commercial crew demo one flight? Yeah, SpaceX demo one actually happened, which means we are one step closer to having commercial crew really happen where American astronauts will lift off from an American space pad in a, uh, a rocket built by an American company, which would be, uh, those are things, some of those things have never happened before. And some of those things have not happened for a very long time uh, because U.S. access to space right now, everybody's access to space outside of China, I guess, is through the Soyuz. So um, SpaceX's uh, Crew Dragon was launched without people in it. They did have a, uh, a mannequin named Ripley sitting mm. in one of the chairs with lots of sensors and stuff because they want to do test of like what the what the G's are and uh, you know everything that a, a what a human would experience in that scenario. Um, they also had a stuffed like a plushie of planet Earth. Yes. That was uh, loosely tethered to one of the chairs and they referred to it as the zero gravity indicator and basically <laughs> it was why don't we put something in the capsule that'll float so that we can have video of a thing floating and say look they're in space so and they did that something adorable which is always a, yeah. a win super adorable it was uh it was kidnapped by the way it is still on the space station they didn't send it back in the capsule although apparently when when uh this group comes back the current uh, group that's up there they will bring it back with them and probably bring it back to nasa or spacex one of those um late night launch i watched it live because it was on at like 11 40 or something p.m you presumably woke up the next morning and said hey (laughs) yeah they did it I actually was in Chicago f- for work and I woke up and was like, oh, I wonder if that happened. And, you know, looking at space Twitter, I was like, ah, yes, followed along several hours later. I-, I did watch some highlights on YouTube and you put this in here. You beat me to this in the Google Doc. It felt strangely like a normal SpaceX launch. Like it, you know, it was like kind of the same vibe to it. Yeah, I told Lauren, um, I'm going to stay up and watch the space launch. She's like, well, I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's good, right? Like, some of us will stay up till uh, midnight to watch spaceships, and others of us won't. And those people don't listen to this podcast. Um, I uh, So I, I was really excited, and it's like, oh, you know, it's the, there's shot from the inside, and this is going to be totally different. And, you know, this is the, the crew dragon and all that. And the fact is, having watched uh, a dozen or more SpaceX launches at this point, it uh other than the the knowledge that this is where people are going to ride on this thing it was a spacex launch right like they counted it down i mean the the tv broadcast they merged there were people from nasa and spacex mm-hmm. hosting together at all phases of this mission which was kind of funny to see people we see in sort of like nasa tv videos and people we see on the spacex videos and now they're all together kind of collaborating that was kind of fun um but otherwise like yeah it was a spacex launch they had the cheering people in hawthorne and uh the rocket went up and the first stage came back and the first stage landed on the drone ship and the uh, you know, and the second stage was flying off into orbit and the crew dragon was deployed. And like, that was, you know, it was, it was very much a usual SpaceX launch other than knowing what it means. Right. So I launched it and like I said, they dock this with the space station. Uh, it's not immediate. It's got to catch up to the station. And then for a while it's sort of flying, behind and below it and they kind of they check everything out and then they do their approach and everything was successful they docked station crew entered removed the plushy friend and 
called them his own. They adopted him is what I'm going to go with. Yeah. Not stolen. Adopted. That's nicer. Kidnapped. Kidnapped. <laughs> Kidnapped. Uh, they unloaded the, um, there, there was, there was real cargo. They unloaded and loaded it back up over the course of time. It was about a day later that they docked. Um, and docking, you know, so it's, it's a different process. It's fascinating about like with the Soyuz, ones apparently you know they basically come close to the station and they grab it with a, the robot arm the cannon arm and they um attach it um and this is a totally different procedure where crew dragon is able to dock itself automatically and um it's attached to a different uh docking port it's actually where the space shuttle docked and then they've attached um funny story Stephen. Actually, as a little aside here, so they, you have to have an adapter. It's like uh, like getting a dongle for your computer. You have to get an adapter <laughs> right. because um, the space shuttle adapter was built for the space shuttle. And what they did was they, they built an adapter for this new standard um, that was agreed upon. It's an international docking standard. And right now, I think the only two spacecraft that are using it are Crew Dragon and the, uh, the Boeing Starliner. Right, for commercial crew. But theoretically, it could be a standard, and maybe they'll use it on uh, the Lunar Gateway station if they do that, this this international docking standard. Um, So they had to build an adapter that goes from the shuttle uh, dock to this new docking standard. So they built one, and they put it on a SpaceX flight to the space station, and you remember what happened next. It uh, blew up. It blew up. (laughs) Yes. So the one that's there now, I have, I've actually seen when I was part of the NASA social thing for that SpaceX ones that they lost in 2015. I said, oh, well, we have one on the rocket and here's the other one we're building. So we have two of them. And mm-hmm. turns out they needed and, a second. And that's the one that's up there now. And that's what they docked to. So they, they did this automatic docking thing, which was pretty cool. It's it's very slow. Like if you wanted to get up at three in the morning and watch it, it took several hours because it gets close. And then they did a bunch of tests where they were actually like radioing commands from the space station to it to get it to be closer and then to get it to back off. Because this is all part of the sort of checkout is, you know, can we... Uh, you know, if the crew is incapacitated, can we command it? And, you know, it, you know, how do we make sure that it all works safely? And they did all of that. It took a while before they got to the point where they did the soft capture and then they get the little clamps that are little hooks that come out and they do the hard capture. And then they wait a little longer and then they, you know, they open up the two hatches and then they, they have little masks on because they want to be sure that the air in there hasn't been, you know, that weird stuff hasn't kind of come out of the materials and made it uh, toxic. And uh, it's a long process, which is why I wanted to, um, there's a YouTube channel called sci news uh and um i'm very impressed with whoever is behind that channel because they took like four hours of really boring for most of it uh live video of the docking and also the undocking and and uh and splashdown and in a very short amount of time after the undocking like when i got up that morning because that was at four in the morning and i didn't get up for that um, there was a 15 minute long video, I want to say, that showed all the highlights of the entire thing. And I thought, uh, this is a great find because it was an appropriate, like, it was way too long for somebody who doesn't care about space, right? But for me, it was like the perfect length because it was 15 minutes, but it was all interesting stuff. So um, I'll put a link to one of those in the in the show notes for this episode. But I was impressed by that. Um, that was uh, it made it much more entertaining because, you know, it is a slow process to do anything in space, basically, is an incredibly slow process. So thanks to the people who are making the cut down versions that are, you know, they have to watch the whole thing and then they they send us the highlights. I, I appreciate that. That's a good use of YouTube. <laughs> it is. And the thing splashed down in the Atlantic, which we spoke about in our right? Apollo 9 mission is something that hasn't been done in a really long time. The Pacific has been the preferred splashdown location, but it did come down in the Atlantic, and there was some concern from SpaceX or from Elon Musk, so I don't know how strong of a concern it was about during the re-entry, and especially under parachuting, if the thing was going to wobble any, and it, uh, it, I actually watched that part live, the, the re-entry and the parachute and then the splashdown and it all looked buttery smooth i don't think they had any issues with that at all so this is a a good forward step for commercial crew no no doubt about it it. sounds like 
sounds like they they are obviously going to analyze all the data and look at the spacecraft and all the things they need to do to meet to make sure that there isn't something there because this is a test flight right the whole idea is that you're analyzing all of this but so far it sounds pretty good and after the the uh, splashdown and all of that um you know, they immediately started talking about how, um, like, Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, basically immediately said, we're hoping to get people to the space station this year. Like, that is, that is, you know, if all goes well, now that this is back, there's this feeling like we can, we can make this happen. Which is not to say that there aren't, beyond just checking out all the data and making sure that it's all good, there's more to do because there's actually another potentially quite spectacular test that has to run that is, I think, June is what they're targeting now for this. And this is the next thing that needs to happen between uh, now and getting the crude launch by, by the end of the year. And it's, they're going to take this existing capsule the crew dragon that was just at the space station and they're going to put it on the top of a falcon 9 and they're going to launch it and at the moment of maximum dynamic pressure so max q they're going to do an in-flight abort and the idea here is that's the they want confidence in the fact that if there's a problem at any point in the launch uh that they can pop the top off the rocket basically and get the astronauts back safely on the ground or anyway in the water and um so they're going to do that so that's that's sort of the next um launch event that will happen for commercial crew for a for spacex commercial crew and maybe for all commercial crew i i it seems like boeing is falling behind um but uh and then if that is cleared then um basically they are on their way to being able to do a crewed launch to the International Space Station, the first test flight, uh, Demo 2, by the end of the year. And that in-flight abort is really important, as we learned just not that long ago with Soyuz. Yeah, Soyuz had their uh, their in-flight abort where they had to do the ballistic return and all that. And that was um, the two, two well, the co- astronaut and the cosmonauts, Haig and Ovechkin, were going to the ISS and they ended up landing back in Kazakhstan. And it's funny to mention them because coming up in a couple of days as we record this, they're going to, um, they a, a different Soyuz mission went in the meantime, but and they're the ones who are at the ISS right now. But uh, they that crew, along with Christina Koch, who's a, a, a third member of the crew, that wasn't there on their on their last one where they had the aborted mission. They're going up in a couple of days on March 14th um, to the International Space Station. So um, that is they, those those two guys know <laughs> the importance of being able to do a uh, an abort during a launch when something goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, they would have been in trouble otherwise. Yeah, yeah, because they had the you know it didn't. I guess one of the stages didn't disengage properly from the previous stage or something like that, and mm-hmm. the computer saw it and just said this is it, and that's what SpaceX is going to do with their next thing is like make sure that all these abort systems they've done some infl- they've done some abort tests before, but they, I, it sounds like this is the the big one for them is this last in flight abort test. So we have a lot of budget stuff to talk about, but this next story happened sort of before the the budget news cycle started and it's concerning the Europa Clipper. So this came from NASA's Science Mission Directorate about the instruments aboard the Europa Clipper and they're making some changes, aren't they? Yeah, it's um so Thomas Zerbrucken is the head of the Science Mission Directorate at NASA and um they've got this instrument that's on the Europa Clipper, which is a, you know, one of the things we talk about and we'll talk about later, like all the stuff that's going on in plan- in, uh, in space, potentially in the next decade. Um, and there's a lot. There's Potentially the next decade could be pretty amazing in terms of all the different things going on. But there's not as much planetary, uh, you know, being discussed, planetary missions. And, and we've talked about that on this show before. Um, one of the big ones is Europa Clipper, which we've talked about how there was a, a congressman, Charlie Culberson, in Houston who was on the budget committee in the House of Representatives and made sure that uh, he funded that that the final budgets that got passed always had funding for Europa missions. Um, and and it has gotten to the point where Europa Clipper is this mission that's going to launch in the early part of the 2020s and go to uh, Jupiter and uh, analyze Europa because it's a potential place where there could be life because of the big uh, liquid water oceans that are underneath its icy surface. That's great. Um, one of the things they wanted to do was they had this um, instrument called ICEMAG, which of course has an acronym, which is Inter-Characterization of Europa Using Magnetometry. Sure, right? 
uh, and it, it was getting more and more expensive. And they basically put their uh, put a mark on it, put their eye on it, and said, "We got we got to watch this um, because this is getting out of control. And if it and if it's going to be too expensive, we we're going to just kill it." And that's what happened in the last week is that they basically said, we're going to kill this. Uh, Zerbrocken said, we're not going to do this instrument because it's, it's, it's out of control. It's going to be too expensive. Um, and basically said, let's find a cheaper, simpler instrument that will measure the magnetic fields. So they're going to go to a simpler magnetometer. And it's an interesting idea because this is always one of these things. We talk about that with, um, with the, the James Webb space telescope too. It's like, at what point are you, are you dealing with a sunk cost? At what point are you thinking, well, you know, I've spent so much money on this that we should keep spending. And that's always a challenge with these space missions is do do you, when do you say, "Mm, this is not working out? And I don't know enough about the history of ice mag to, to make a judgment there, but it sounds like, um, like Zerbrook and and the, the the science mission directorate have made a call that like, this is not going to work. Like this is going to end up, we think this is going to be way too expensive and keep escalating in cost. And we're not willing to do that. Um, So we're going to, we're going to kill this instrument. So um, there are a bunch of other things that actually potentially have been changed about Europa Clipper as part of the, uh, the proposed budget from the administration. Of course, Europa is a perfect example of how things that get proposed by the administration are not necessarily what ends up in the final budget because all the Europa stuff has basically gotten added by uh, the House under Culberson. Um, so uh, Europa Clipper, which could be like the flagship planetary sciences mission from the U.S. in the next decade, um, undergoing some changes for sure. I wanted to bring up this story I came across about uh, lunar samples from the later Apollo missions. So we all know that they came back with moon rocks and dust and all, and all of these samples. And it turns out that someone had the idea in the 70s to say, hey, look, let's keep some of these samples perfectly sealed, you know, un- uncontaminated for future generations to study. With the thought being that the technology that they have, it turns out 50 years from then, you know, could be drastically better than what we have here in the 70s. and and if we preserve some of this stuff, then future generations can maybe learn more about the lunar surface than what we could gather today, which is an incredible piece of forethought, I think, and a really interesting little chapter of Apollo that I wasn't super familiar with. But turns out that NASA has selected nine teams to study these samples, and they include rocks from Apollo 15, 16, and 17, which have never been exposed to Earth's atmosphere. So they were collected on the lunar surface and basically put into these big sample tubes that are completely sealed shut. And they have been there ever since, stored and watched over very carefully by NASA. And it is now time to open them. So these nine teams are going to work on these different samples. Uh, One sample is actually the only core sample. So this isn't just you know, scooping up from the surface, but actually getting under the surface a little bit from what's believed to be a little bit of a landslide deposit. So potentially other types of material than in the other samples, the only one like that, and it was sealed for future use. And it's this article I was reading brought up a good point that Apollo captured a very limited sample set from the lunar surface, right? They didn't... Uh, the the amount of moon left unexplored is massive compared to what the astronauts walked around on and where they collected from. And even with the lunar rover in later missions, their scope as far as how far they could travel was really pretty limited. And in the years since then, we know a lot more about the lunar surface, about rocks and minerals that are there that we have not collected. But it's it's kind this is kind of uh a way to think about what we're going to talk about next about future lunar exploration that there's going to be a lot more potentially sample returns and the material used from the moon in all sorts of ways especially when you talk about industry and everything and this kind of feels like a bridge from the apollo missions to the future where we're going to look at these samples and learn more and right on the cusp of potentially a, a huge growth of knowledge in this area it's amazing to think that there are still samples that are basically untouched, either frozen or in a uh, you know vacuum container since 
you know, nearly 50 years ago. That's mm-hmm. kind of hard to believe. And I did have that moment where I thought what you said about uh, this being a bridge, like, well, at some point, if I've got a can of moon rocks <laughs> that's untouched, um, they're going to start bringing back more moon rocks. So, you know, it would be it would be silly <laughs> to keep this can of moon rocks around um, and untouched because, well, no, no, we can't because when will we get more? Because eventually there will be more. Mm-hmm. Like once you're once you're a little more uh, convinced that there will be uh, moon rocks and other samples returned in the, in the next decade, then maybe it's a little bit easier to crack that thing open and use modern technology to analyze it. I think that's fair. Yeah, including volatiles, which, I mean, the volatiles part is the most interesting part, is the idea that since it's been kept this way, you know, we may be able to detect things in it that that uh, the moon rocks that were just kind of like put in a bag are going to, all the volatiles will kind of burn off and that uh, something in a vacuum container, we can we can see the stuff that's in place on the, the materials that are in place on the moon, but are not uh, maybe in our other samples um, with modern tech. It's cool. It's a, that's a cool story. I had not seen that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you bet. All right, so let's get to the budget, but first, do you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Sure, yes, but the budget is very interesting, but before that, let me tell you something else that is interesting, and it is Eero. Eero can let you build a Wi-Fi system perfectly tailored to your house. I know I've done that here. Stephen, have you done that too? I have done that. Yeah, mm hmm. Yep, yep. So we live in a high bandwidth world. You need, uh, there are a lot of internet things, internet of things devices around your home too. You need a distributed home system of Wi Fi because you need to get good speeds and you need to have access in all sorts of weird corners of your house of your house that you might not stand with a laptop, but there's a camera there or something. Eero lets you install an enterprise grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. It starts with the second gen Eero device itself. It has three five gigahertz radios, which allow for increased speed and range, and it sits flat on any surface and connects either over Ethernet or wirelessly. And then you expand the coverage by adding Eero beacons. These are small devices that plug directly into the wall, uh, and they can also be a nightlight. And they let you extend that range um, kind of automatically it talks back to the base station and they all figure it out it's super easy and it extends the range to other parts of your home and now Eero also has Eero Plus which is a service designed to provide simple reliable security to help defend all those devices that you have in your home from bad people doing bad stuff like you know malware phishing unsuitable content they can tag sites that contain violent illegal or adult content so it gives you parental controls at the uh, right at the Wi-Fi not even on the devices that are being browsed but right at the Wi-Fi it's got ad blocking functionality it's also possible to have Eero Plus check the sites you visit against a database of millions of threats to prevent you from visiting anything malicious. There's even a subscription to one password for password management, malware bytes for antivirus, and encrypt.me, all part of Eero Plus. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Go to Eero.com slash liftoff and at checkout, use the promo code liftoff. That's Eero.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff. Thank you, Eero, for filling our houses with Wi-Fi and supporting liftoff and all of Relay FM. It's budget time, Jason. So oh boy. Everyone looks forward to it's it's hard to believe Woo. that this event only last year you and I both attended. <laughs> it's like hard to believe it's only been a year. Uh yeah, wow. Okay, so some high level stuff. This is the proposed administration budget for NASA. This has not been approved by Congress. Lots of things in here will change. I think you and I both have some feelings about some things that may change as we work our way through this. But this is sort of the starting point for the 2020 NASA budget. They're looking at $21 billion. Once again, this is more than NASA itself requested from the administration. The administration can say, oh, no, you really want this number. The administration can impose its will on NASA through these budgetary figures. Out of the $21 billion, Roughly half is lunar focused under the, I guess, newly rebranded Moon to Mars program. So I have a link to this in the show notes. It's this, you know, fancy landing page of NASA talking about the next decade of work to get to the moon and then into the 2030s going to Mars. So this is another conceptualization of the same thing we've been talking about forever on this show you know 
Yeah. Every to, time you hear Mike Pence or Jim Bridenstine talking about um, NASA, they they always phrase it as we're going to go back to the moon and then on to Mars. Mm-hmm. Go back to the moon as a part of learning about the things that are going to take us to Mars. That's that's the way that this is being pitched is not, you know, let's not bother going to Mars. We're going to go to the moon instead, which is uh, another way that people could phrase this. But they're like, no, that's not what, what we're thinking. We're thinking we're going to go to the moon first and then using what we learned there, go to Mars. So mm-hmm. moon to Mars is their is their marketing uh, slogan for this. Sure. So by 2028, this is what this budget and this plan says will be accomplished. Two Orion SLS test flights with five operational flights. So that's a little more, and that's like, what, 18 months apart, 12 to 18 months apart, which is kind of the cadence we're, we're hearing from NASA now about how often they will fly an SLS rocket. The assembly of the Lunar Gateway is now listed in the mid-2020s, so it's a little vaguer than it was, which for reasons we'll get to in a second. 14 commercial lunar logistics flights, 10 commercial lunar payload services flights, a robotic lunar rover landing, and a demonstration of a reusable lunar ascent vehicle, and then finally capping it off, a crewed landing on the moon by 2028. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of that steps is, in there. That's uh, pretty ambitious. It's a it's a it's a great list, right? But it is uh, that's a lot going on there. Um, you know, none of which we will see in the next what at least two plus years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, out of this, SLS is the most visible, I think. But this other stuff, especially like the commercial side of it, Falcon Heavy is already here and operational and falcon heavy would be used for some of this we Mm -hmm. we can assume especially for the gateway where you've got to fly pretty big components but yeah i I feel like this isn't quite we're not going to be into this for another 24 months or so the lunar landing bit is interesting there's several things going on here there's 1.5 billion for a public private development for like we said reusable piloted lunar landers. So unlike the lunar landers of the Apollo era, which were not reusable Sing- in, in any single way. Single use, yeah. Things, mm-hmm. Very much single use. Designed actually where it couldn't deal with the atmosphere of Earth. A very different approach here. And I think one that is better in our modern age have reusable spacecraft. Yeah. I, I would imagine that they wouldn't be reusable to Earth. I would imagine that they would be reusable to Gateway. Gateway right? and back, yes. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, you'd, you'd have a very lightweight thing that never needs to see an atmosphere. But instead of Apollo, which had the, you know, the descent stage that they left behind on, on the limb, um, that this thing would be able to land and then, you know, ascend all as part of one piece and go back up to Gateway, which when you think about it, is uh, a pretty cool idea that you could go um, back and forth multiple times Mm -hmm. you know you basically you've got the you got the car there (laughs) that you can take down to the moon whenever you need to from the uh from the from the gateway station that instead of having to do this whole process um to go to the moon and then land and then come back home that you could park that vehicle at the gateway station and um and refuel it maybe and and reuse it that would be uh interesting now there's like maintenance questions and stuff which is also kind of fascinating is do you maintain that thing around gateway and have uh, do some like moonwalk or not moonwalks some evas around gateway to make sure that it's all still working okay how do you do that that's a fascinating thing a reusable lander but um yeah interesting interesting idea definitely uh the budget also includes solar and propulsion modules for Gateway and and kind of getting Gateway ready for astronauts visiting by 2024, which is five years, only five years away. Mm-hmm. Coming up quick. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's basically, and we've talked about it before, but it's the International Space Station Project move to the moon, essentially, which is yes. saying we're going to build another with partners and Canada's already on board and there's talk about like a European module and all of that of launching these modules and assembling them in lunar orbit um, and having a presence in lunar orbit, which is, uh, that's, yeah, that's quite a thing. That's, that's quite mm-hmm. a thing. 
The International Space Station is in this budget as well, though. So $1.45 billion for ongoing operations. And this, unlike previous budget documents, does not mention an end date for station. So all that talk we went through the last couple of years about you know, commercial entities taking it over or decommissioning it or turning it into something new, this budget seems to leave that a little more open-ended. And I still think there are a lot of questions around what is the future and then the end of life look for the International Space Station. But for now, uh, it seems like it's going to be business as usual in low Earth orbit. I think nobody wants to turn the lights out on continuous human uh, um, residency in space. And the space station has had people in it since, I think, the year 2000, continuously. And I, I think there's nobody in a position of, of especially political authority that wants to be the one who is who is saying, let's retreat, which is, I feel like this is how you do it. This is how you shut down the International Space Station is by um, building a moon station, right? And then you're like, yeah. well, if we're not in the I- either of the ISS gets turned into something different, or even if you do shut it down or take it apart, um, you're not retreating from space because you've got something else going on. Right now, there's not a lot else going on in terms of um, space programs outside of uh, China, I suppose, which has got doing its own thing uh, that isn't about the the ISS. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So we'll see how that goes. You know, there there have and- been conversations too about how long the station can last you know as it as it ages and as what happens if things start to break down that are not easily fixable on orbit but so far those have not transpired yet right and is there a role in the iss as a earth space station if we also have a space station around the moon i mean depending on how it's envisioned it may be useful to have a transfer point essentially where the the vehicles that you use to get back and forth between the moon and the earth are not the same vehicles that you use to get up from the earth to orbit like it's it depends on how you do it you could it could be structured in a way where the iss is actually a useful place to load a crew um, to take them from Earth to the moon and reuse that spaceship as well. You got to get fuel. That's a challenge. You still got to get fuel up there. But um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. But I, I do think fundamentally nobody wants to turn the lights out on the ISS when there's no real replacement for it or alternative to it. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. So, so let's talk about some things that don't come out so well in this budget. NASA Science Division's uh, overall, the proposal calls for a $600 million cut. This is across a bunch of different programs and Earth Sciences Divisions, but uh, continued whittling away of this by this administration, which is disappointing, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, our friend W. First is back. Remember last year in the budget, there was uh, a big push to postpone or even cancel or somehow sometimes how this happens is it's postponed so bad it is effectively canceled this budget does that again with the fine print of you don't get any funding until the james webb is in service so it it puts pressure on nasa to finish that first before moving on to the uh the the next telescope i remember last year there there was a big outcry about this and i think there already is again about this mm-hmm. this particular cut, yeah, it's a it's it's one of the uh, decadal uh, research priorities of the scientific community. Um, it's a it's a an important project. The administration doesn't want to fund. I think I think that the administration is basically saying you need to you need to get the James Webb. We're not going to pay for two of these telescope projects simultaneously, so you're just going to have to delay this until you get the James Webb up. Um, but it is a, an important instrument and it's a high scientific priority and as we saw last year um in the end congress would not um would not take it mm-hmm. and it's a different congress now but still the congress would not would not accept this that w first got put back in so it may yet be saved but once again they're trying to kill it yeah so speaking of james webb and europa clipper before both see slight increases uh again Despite ongoing issues with James Webb and the instrumentation changes with the Clipper, uh, both of those missions are moving forward in this budget. 
So there, uh, James Webb is just going to happen eventually, I suppose. Got to keep working on it. Mm-hmm. It also adds funds for the Mars sample return mission. So this is a, a several part mission where the Mars 2020 rover would gather samples for a future return mission. And that's what this budget funds is that second stage of that where those samples come back. So this is a two-part thing. Uh, It's been spoken about for a long time, and I think it's fantastic that it gets funded in this budget. Yeah, it's a a good sign. Yeah, because March 2020 is going to gather the rocks my neighbor's my neighbor's daughter actually uh, was an intern in JPL and worked on that project, uh, the sample return. Um, but then you have to somebody has to get the samples and um, then launch them back to Mars orbit and then go from Mars back to Earth, which is a lot of steps. But yes. they are they are continuing to push it, and I like the fact that Mars twenty twenty is starting it out. Like they are they are going to collect samples. Yeah, um, we talk about moon, moon rocks, Mars samples. Because all of the instruments we have there are great, but they're not the same as instruments we have back on Earth if we could get some samples. But that requires, yes, you got to pick it up, you got to fire rocket off the surface of Mars uh, back to Mars orbit, which we've never done, and then back to Earth, which we've never done. So it's a lot. It's a lot, but I think it's, I think it's exciting. There is no money for the Office of STEM Engagement, which I find... Again. Again, which I find infuriating again. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. I just, I mean, I, this is one of those things, right, where we have to remember NASA is a federal agency and its budget is dictated by politics and politicians. And I just can't stand behind that decision in any way. But moving on before I have an aneurysm, uh, hmm. we need to talk about the SLS, which means it's time for the SLS segment. Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. I didn't get the song. Oh, man. Uh, Well, uh, I mean, it's sort of sad. Okay, I'll do SLS segment. (laughs) That sums it up pretty pretty nicely. So there's a lot going on here, and... I think I've done my best. I did a lot of reading, and I think I've got all the details straight. So the budget makes changes to the SLS roadmap, so NASA's next big rocket. SLS it was, has been designed from the beginning to have multiple blocks. So this was a, a rocket that was not going to, to roll off the assembly line in its final form. There were going to be several generations of this rocket, each one more capable than the previous one, both in terms of payload capability, but also reach as far as how how far we could get that payload away from Earth. And these stages are called blocks. You had block one, block one B, and then block two. Block one coming first. And that's what we've been talking when we've been talking about the first SLS uh the the EM1 that uncrewed SLS Orion mission we're talking about a block 1 rocket the first version of it that is now slated for the early 2020s so that's uh, a little bit of a slip but not surprising there were stories leading up to the budget talking about that uh coming down the the way so early 2020s now for that flight the block 1 is more powerful than what's currently available but not by a huge amount. So the block one can carry 95, um, 95 metric tons into low earth orbit. For comparison, the Falcon heavy is about 64. So it is, it can lift more than the Falcon heavy, but you kind of see they're, they're, you know, they're not, it's not a huge gap. And uh, the BFR will close that gap pretty much. Block 1B was going to add what was called the exploration upper stage. So a second stage of the rocket that was going to increase its carrying capacity to 130 metric tons, which is a lot of, (laughs) a, a lot more capability in terms of building things like the Lunar Gateway. As far as outer solar system exploration, you can lift heavier uh, spacecraft and move them more quickly than 
any other rocket built. It's a big deal. The, the 1B is really like where SLS, uh, in my opinion, was going to come into its own and really stand apart from these commercial vehicles and give NASA a more diverse set of tools and a more diverse set of vehicles to choose from when planning missions. Mm-hmm. And here's where we get to the sad song news is that the exploration upper stage is effectively uh, on hold for the for an unknown amount of time. Uh, the budget instead, and I, I'm quoting from Lauren Grush, focuses on the program uh, on the completion of the initial version of the SLS uh, and supporting a reliable SLS and Orion annual flight cadence. So again, looking at that 2028 moon to Mars thing, trying to launch this thing in a block one configuration at least once a year as missions require. And to do that, NASA feels like the exploration upper stage just needs to be kicked down the road some. And it, to me, it raises a lot of questions about SLS and about the program. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it puts commercial partners, you know, on way more even playing ground with the SLS when when NASA's looking at what vehicle to use for future missions. Yes, and and I wanted to mention specifically one of those changes that I I um I foreshadowed earlier is Europa Clipper was legally um, attached at some point by some act of Congress to launching on SLS. And in the budget proposal, they're proposing Europa Clipper launch on a commercial rocket, which is basically it's Falcon Heavy. Um, and that's that's a big change, right? Because that's, that's yet another um, reduction in what is being asked of SLS. Yeah, it, the reasons for SLS to exist get a lot shorter without Block 1B coming online when yeah. it was going to. It's, it's yeah, just, I mean, this is the direct to the moon. Um, this is the this is the bigger than the Saturn V. Like, this is the, the big one, and it's the reason that the SLS, that's the, been the justification for the SLS for a while now, is that, you know, 1B is going to really change the game here. Yeah. Um, which is good because the regular Block 1 is only slightly more... Um, has only more uh, a little more lifting capacity than a couple other rockets that are out there. So why does this exist other than, as we've said many times here, other than as a political project? Uh, then again, this is also an administration proposal. And, um, you know, the senator from Alabama wants them to build big rockets in Huntsville. Sure. And that may, they may not have a choice. Yeah, I think out of everything in this budget, this is the bit that's going to be changed the most. I don't know if Block 1B will be put back in and something else gets taken out, but I feel like they're going to be unhappy with this uh, this timeline change. Uh, another factor here, though, to, to back up a second, talking about SLS against its commercial rivals, SLS is estimated to cost about a billion dollars per launch, where the Falcon Heavy is like 90 million. And it's easier to absorb that cost if this rocket can do something that no other rocket can do. But that margin is much smaller if NASA just has a block one vehicle and they don't have that additional capacity. And it, you know, I know I haven't been like the world's most strident SLS fan, but I really struggle to view any of this in a good light. Again, I agree with you. I think Congress is going to change this. But this does reflect, to a degree, the view of the administration and NASA's administration. And that's, that really says something powerful, I think, about the future of this vehicle. Yeah, I think they're – reading between the lines here, there's the politics of this um, in terms of people wanting to use uh, – you know, senators wanting them to build rockets in their home states and things like that. I do think they're, that this administration especially is really high on commercial crew. And on commercial space in general, and partnerships with commercial uh, entities, and the idea that they could use um, ULA and and Boeing and SpaceX and all these partners, and then they look at SLS and it's like, hmm, this is the old this is the old way, this is the old school. What? And and again, a lot of money been spent, so there's the sunk cost question and yeah. fallacy there. But you know, I think this administration, especially as a conservative Republican administration looks at this and says, 
why do we have a big government project to do something instead of um, working with commercial partners so that because because, you know, implicit in that argument is that the commercial partners are going to be more efficient and than a big government bureaucracy. And there's lots of reasons. It's it's way more complicated than that. And some of this has to do also with, um, you know, what rockets are human rated and not in terms of safety. But um, but I, I, I could see people in the current administration, especially looking at, I mean, it's not even a hard argument, right, to say, well, this costs a billion and this costs 90 million. Um, there we go. Right. Like it's so it's it's so stark the contrast there so i believe that they are really um thinking positively about commercial partnerships especially given what they've done with uh spacex and are continuing to do with spacex and boeing and other partners and um and so i think they've got some skepticism about this in fact i would go so far as to say that if sls hadn't had billions of dollars pumped into it already it would be um probably more severe of like just shutting it down but but i do think their eyes are on the on the prize in one level which is that i think they feel more confident in block 1b being able to take people to the moon or ultimately to mars um than they are um the you know the the rocket that elon musk is mocking up in texas right i think i think that there's a hedge here because they want that mars exploration to happen and they want that moon exploration to happen and you know, if you're not confident that a commercial partner is going to be able to do it, then maybe you you keep this up. But it's a very expensive hedge against companies that have had pretty good track records and would be happy to take your money in order to build you the thing that you want to build. I think all that's spot on. I really do. And so I think this uh, out of all of this will be the most interesting to watch moving forward. Oh, as yeah. Congress gets their hands on this. because, And, and of course, the the larger budget is going to be fascinating because it's fascinating when it's the same Congress of the same party as the president. They still go back and forth about this stuff and don't give last year's budget did not give the administration what it wanted, even though it was all Republicans. And now you've got one of the one of the houses of of uh, the House of Representatives in this case is possessed by the other party. So it's going to be the whole budget process is going to be much more fiercely contended and debated and all that. It will be interesting to see where the space stuff is like sliding sliding in like through the back door there and like uh, how how'd that work out because it's not going to be where the big arguments are going to be so i think that sums up where the budget is there's a ton of stuff in there i feel like we've done a pretty good job pulling out the highlights but there's a lot to it and as as th- this thing grinds forward we will we will stay in touch with it and see what's going on all right. Uh, as promised, because there wasn't enough going on, you and I both saw Apollo 11. But before we get into our review, I want to tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea. And you can have that website parked at a unique domain name and using award-winning templates. Maybe you want to create an online store, or maybe you need a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you want to be like Jason and start writing a blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. And there's nothing to install, there's no patches to worry about, and there are no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about becoming some sort of web server admin because Squarespace simply got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. This is a true story. Just this weekend, I helped a friend of mine. He's got a new business, and he just needed a simple little website to send to some people he's working with, with some contact information and a little bit of copy about what this new company is going to do, and something that I just really like about Squarespace is they have image search built in. So he needed some imagery based around this uh, new company and he didn't have any stock photos yet. And there were a bunch of free ones available. You can just search right within the Squarespace editor and you can even purchase them through your Squarespace account if you need an image that has a price tag associated with it. It's like one of those little things that makes Squarespace a joy to use. Their plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for liftoff. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show, Squarespace. 
make your next move, make your next website. Okay, Apollo 11, we both saw it in IMAX, which Yeah. Totally the way to see this movie if you, if you mm-hmm. can if it's uh still showing uh, around you in IMAX. It was incredible. So, we spoke about this uh last episode I think a little bit about this film, but it uses a lot of original, what's well, all original, but a lot of um rare footage that hasn't really seen the light of day before and uh, a lot of that was shot um in like really large format back of the day so it's really crisp and it's just beautiful looking footage but what i had missed in our previous conversation was apollo 11 is unlike really any other apollo documentary or even space documentary i've ever seen in that there is no there's no backbone through the movie formed by narration. So there's not, mm-hmm. oh, we're interviewing Gene Cernan about this thing, and then we cut to footage of Gene Cernan doing that thing. Or we're talking uh, to someone who worked in the, um, you know, in the firing room, and then we cut to footage of the launch. And it is all, except for a few motion graphics, which I think are done really well, it's all original, like, footage from the time and the footage yes. and the audio tell the story there's not a, a thread of narration through it and it, that seems nearly impossible to me because you, you think about the structure of these movies and apollo 11 just bypasses all of it and i think it's a lot stronger for it yeah, I mean, there are movies without narrators that I've seen that, but you're right that the, there's usually a, a through line and there's some interviews of things that it's what happened later. And there is nothing in this movie, basically, that isn't, um, you know, in terms of the footage they're using from 1969, other than, as you said, these sort of very simple, like, title overlays and very basic graphics that mm-hmm. look like um, asteroids to me. It's all yeah, just kind of triangles and squares and little lines. Yeah. And yeah. And, yeah, and, sorry, and not, even not that, actual asteroids, the video game asteroids the, yeah. with very simple lines and all of that. And it's all from 1969. And the music itself apparently was composed, it, and it's a really great score, um, entirely with um, instruments that were available in 1969. So it's got like mellotrons and other kind of like weird electronic instruments from the 60s mm-hmm. because he wanted it to feel like a document from the uh, from 1969. Yeah, and even those graphics, so they have one showing how the command service module separates and spins around and pulls the lunar module out of the upper stage. And while that's going on, the audio under it is period audio talking about the maneuver, right? It's not someone coming in and breaking in and saying, oh, hey, this is how this worked. You're seeing how no, it it's, works it's, as they're talking about it. Yeah, it's it's mostly Walter Cronkite. There's a little I noticed a little Jules Bergman as well uh, from ABC, but they've got some of that uh, narration essentially that is from newscasters. It's mostly not. It's mostly Capcom and audio on, recorded on the uh, various spacecraft or at Mission Control. Um, so it's not just all radio either. There's stuff that's like recorded in the room in various places um, and and was put on a tape somewhere and was pulled out for this along with all this footage, which was apparently there was like one, some of the footage was in a movie in 1971 that nobody saw and that's it. Um, and we, we can get into it because there's stuff in here that you have never seen about this. You think if there was anything that's been done to death, it's been Apollo 11 and... Uh, not now it's been done to death <laughs> now now they've because this is completely there's just completely new stuff in here um which is pretty amazing mm-hmm. yeah that film was called moonwalk one i have an article about it in the show notes it it just didn't do anything uh, hardly no, at all no and nobody nobody refers to it now and says well you can find this footage in moonwalk one like it just is has disappeared mm-hmm. um, but that's it like most of this footage w- has never been seen before like literally they were taking it out of the national archives and cleaning it up and scanning it in to make this thing and a lot of it was 70 millimeter basically 65 millimeter or something like that but it's like it's huge it's large format it's way higher quality than what many movies are shot on and um and some of the footage especially uh pre-launch when they're getting their spacesuits and they're rolling the um the saturn 5 
out to the pad is just spectacular on a big screen. And then for me, the audio was the other part of it is that this movie tries very hard to amp up the audio. And um, so it's rumbly and, uh, and it's very impressive. The music scorer really helps with that too. I will say there are a few moments where it was very clear to me, and I think, Stephen, you and I are broken for this now because we do podcasts, so we do audio editing. There are a few moments early on where there's stuff like they're getting loaded into the Astro van or while they're putting on their spacesuits and stuff, where it was very clear to me that that was all a recreation of the sound, that they didn't have sound from that. So, like, the moment that really broke it for me, and this is... I love this movie, but forgive me. This is my big complaint about it. They load into the Astro van and you can hear every step they take as they put their, their little booties onto the back or their little boots onto the back of the Astro van. You can hear that go clunk, clunk, clunk as there are people around and applause and all that. I'm like, that's no, that was all made up. Like, and I, I almost would have, I personally, I would have preferred a little more uh, verity there and just not had the sound, but I guess why they did, I get why they did it because they want you completely engaged in this. You were there and and the pictures are spectacular, but it did, it took me out of it a little bit because I was like, there's no way that that's real audio. This is fake audio. And you can tell kind of because there's scenes where people are talking and you can't hear them, but you can hear kind of rumbling in the background like other people are talking. And that's, that's footage where they couldn't match the audio. Once mm-hmm. they get into the, 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 and the launch control is like that. The launch control room is really like that. Once they get into mission control, um, that all i'm not saying it goes away it probably is still there but it's invisible because they do a very good job of matching all this footage that they got with recordings from mission control where there's audio of the people talking on the loop and uh that's all matched so that that you're actually hearing them talk which is pretty great and was i cannot even imagine how much work that was to catalog all of that material and get the moment where that guy says that thing and find the audio of it and sync it up Mm -hmm. but they did it they did it there it's just early on i was like "Mm, yeah you know that rumble of the the deep bass rumble as they roll it out to the pad uh you know was invented for this movie probably almost certainly but it's it is spectacular and immersive yeah, this Rolling Stone article says they had twenty. They unearthed twenty thousand hours of audio from Mission Control. Uh, I mean the yeah the the human power to go through all of that and to catalog it, uh, right? Because it, it's not just mind the, blowing. It's not. And we when we research our Apollo episodes, we found some of this stuff, but we don't. We're just kind of like scooping up what's online. But like they recorded not just the Capcom, like not just the radio, but they recorded the internal loops and there's audio recordings made in these rooms. There's audio recordings on the spacecraft. So like at one point in Apollo 11, when they're behind the moon, I think when they're about to do their translunar injection, maybe Mm -hmm. Um, it might happen both times, you know, they're behind the moon. So they have to do this burn when they're out of touch with the earth. So there's no radio contact, but there's a recorder running in the spacecraft and so we hear the astronauts and we see some film that they're shooting when they're cut off from the rest of the world and so there's lots of material that's not just the radio calls um and then they they apparently went through all of that which is it's a huge amount yeah my my takeaway from especially that section was you know you and i we have seen well except for moonwalk one we've seen basically (laughs) everything that's out there on this yeah. And there was so much of this that was new to me. Mm-hmm. And I was, sometimes you go into these things and you realize, okay, okay, this is kind of like a remix of what all these things have been. But I really think Apollo 11 stands apart from the other works because all of this time went into it to to find this stuff and to bring it back to life, you know, or some of it to life for the first time. And it really pays off. One thing I absolutely love, there are several scenes where filmmakers use a split screen effect. So this is mostly once the mission has started, because like the 65 millimeter film, that's all here, right? So like these beautiful shots of the outside of the Saturn V, there's one looking up at the the launch service tower, and it's, it's a little like nauseating almost it's like it's hmm. it's in such high detail it's like you're standing under it it's like whoa okay like i feel uh like i'm there but moving to the spacecraft the quality goes down and they to accommodate for that in certain certain scenes they do a lot of split screen but there's one where they're going around the room for uh calling the go no go i think for translunar injection and they 
basically every time you know every person they call out, they have a block of video of that person, the actual human being who on the tape says go. They ha- they add them to this like video mosaic, and I think it does a really nice job of surfacing the work of so many people who we may have just heard their voice in a previous film, or if you listen to some of this archival footage, like on NASA's website, but the filmmakers found the footage of the, of the person saying that and married the two. And it, it, what this movie did for me and something that I didn't expect is it made the Apollo program feel much bigger than these other films do. Often you just think about the Capcom and the astronauts and maybe their backup crew and like, you know, mission directors, but you don't really get the sense of, Oh, there are hundreds of people in this room. And then, and there's other rooms where hundreds more people are doing things. And this film surfaces all that in a way that I really found refreshing. Yeah, it is at the end. There's that shot of them, like the astronauts visiting the people, all, like all the people who worked on the project that is, uh, makes that point uh, really dramatically that this is, this was an enormous effort. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the, to me, this, this feels like it's the, almost the definitive history documentary about Apollo 11, the mission, right? It's not going to tell you, it's, it doesn't have the interviews. It's not going to reflect on how it, how it took for them to get there. It is all about the, the, you know, the days that the mission went on. But in that way, it is, it drills down so deep. It is so definitive. It's so, um, dramatic right like obviously this took place over many days but uh it it takes you to the points of drama it's like that youtube (laughs) channel i mentioned earlier like it makes it so you're watching you feel like you've gone on the whole mission as you when you are at the end of the film because it takes you from the start to the finish and it takes through all you through all the uh really important moments um and the i wanted to mention the um the part of it that blew me away, the one bit of footage that I could not believe I was seeing, like, okay, Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon is arguably the most famous moment in human history. Like, it's up there. It's up there. It may be the, the biggest single thing that people have ever done or a person has ever done. Um, and this movie's like, oh yeah, here's um, Buzz Aldrin's view from inside the Lem looking out the window as he steps off from his camera that nobody in 50 years has ever seen. It's just like, there it is. And that's what they show you. It's like, you're in the, you're in the Lem with Buzz looking out the window, watching Neil standing at the bottom, radioing back, okay, I'm going to do this. And then stepping off and saying, you know, uh, giant leap for man, giant leap for mankind, or, you know, the, the one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I got it wrong. Oh, well, he got it wrong too. Um, but like, it's, we're in the Lem with, and, and I thought to myself, have I ever seen this before? And then I read the article. It's like, nope, nobody's seen it before. Nobody, nope, they've never used that clip that, that was shot by Buzz Aldrin from inside when he stepped out. It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> like, and there, there were several other moments that were kind of like that, but that was the moment I was like, I cannot believe what I'm seeing here. It's incredible. And it's, it's sort of amazing to me that how much of this got, I don't know about lost, but sort of misplaced over the years. You know, the, I think why, people were just, you know, people were tired of it. Like there was a lot of stuff that was done. And then it's got to be that like after a while, first off, people probably assumed that everything had been done and not everybody knew about this stuff. And, you know, when, what is the, when is there a call for Apollo 11 nostalgia or history? And, you know, and it turns out it's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 is when (laughs) (laughs) this was, (laughs) this was finally, finally the time, but it is, it is mind boggling to think like those lunar samples that we talked about earlier, that some of this stuff just sat there waiting to be rediscovered for almost 50 years. Go see it. Yeah. Thumbs up from the (laughs) liftoff podcast. Maybe not too surprisingly, but it's good. It is not, it is, it is, I think it'll keep people uh, entertained. I was, that was my trepidation of going into it is like, I'm going to sit here and watch for a couple hours, uh, footage from Apollo 11. Um, can't pause it. 
can't eat a sandwich. Well, I could have brought a sandwich in with me or something. But I was like, I'm like, is it? I hope this is entertaining. It was super entertaining. Yeah, the whole way. And it's not even a couple hours. It's like 93 minutes long or something. So it flew by. I don't even know how long it is. I assume all movies are two and a half hours long now. But it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's really good. And I made a, a trek to an IMAX theater, but it's now playing in regular theaters too. Um, but it is, I think it's worth seeing on the big screen with a yes. nice sound system. If you, um, if you were thinking, could I wait and watch this when it's just a dock on my TV? You could, if you miss it in theaters, you should, but if you get a chance, especially to see it on a big screen with the big sound, um, I would say go do it because it is quite a fun experience. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. I think I think that does it for this week. Yeah, I think so. Just we have f- a lot to live up to for our Apollo 11 episode, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I can't make any promises that we'll beat that. No. But it is coming up soon, but we have one more to do before then. We do, we do, we do. Yeah, Apollo 10 will be the end of May, so it's coming up. Yeah, coming up. In the meantime, you can find a bunch of links to stuff we spoke about, including a whole bunch of articles about the budget that go into a lot more detail than we did. You can find those at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 93. While you're there, you can check out a link to our blog where we post links to things in between episodes that is uh, there in the sidebar. And you can find us on Twitter. You can find Jason as jsnell, and you can find me there as ismh. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios. Adios.